Section 31 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Peel's Administration, Part 2. One small installment of justice to a much-injured and long-suffering religious body was accomplished without any trouble by Sir Robert Peel's government this was the bill for removing the test by which jews were excluded from certain municipal offices a jew might be high sheriff of a county or sheriff of london but with an inconsistency which was as ridiculous as it was narrow-minded he was prevented from becoming a mayor or an alderman or even a member of the common council the oath which had to be taken included the words on the true faith of a christian Lord Lyndhurst, the Lord Chancellor, introduced a measure to get rid of this absurd anomaly, and the House of Lords, who had firmly rejected similar proposals of relief before, passed it without difficulty. It was, of course, passed by the House of Commons, which had done its best to introduce the reform in previous sessions and without success. The Bank Charter Act, separating the issue from the banking department of the Bank of England, limiting the issue of notes to a fixed amount of securities and requiring the whole of the further circulation to be on a basis of bullion and prohibiting the formation of any new banks of issue is a characteristic and important measure of peel's government to peel too we owe the establishment of the income tax on its present basis a doubtful boon the copyright question was at last advanced to stage railways were regulated the railway mania and railway panic also belong to this active period the country went wild with railway speculation the south sea scheme was hardly more of a bubble or hardly burst more suddenly or disastrously the vulgar and flashy successes of one or two lucky adventurers turned the heads of the whole community for a time it seemed to be a national article of faith that the capacity of the country to absorb new railway schemes and make them profitable was unlimited and that to make a fortune one had only to take shares in anything an odd feature of the time was the outbreak of what were called the rebecca riots in wales these riots arose out of the anger and impatience of the people at the great increase of toll bars and tolls on the public roads some one it was supposed had hit upon a passage in genesis which supplies a motto for their grievance and their complaint and they blessed rebecca and said unto her let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them they set about accordingly to possess very effectually the gates of those which hated them mobs assembled every night destroyed turnpikes and dispersed they met with little molestation in most cases for a while the mobs were always led by a man in woman's clothes supposed to represent the typical rebecca as the disturbances went on it was found that no easier mode of disguise could be got than a woman's clothes and therefore in many of the riots petticoats might almost be said to be the uniform of the insurgents force night after night for months these midnight musterings took place rebecca and her daughters became the terror of many regions as the work went on it became more serious rebecca and her daughters grew bold there were conflicts with the police and with the soldiers 
it is to be feared that men and even women died for rebecca at last the government succeeded in putting down the riots and had the wisdom to appoint a commission to inquire into the cause of so much disturbance and the commission as will readily be imagined found that there were genuine grievances at the bottom of the popular excitement the farmers and the labourers were poor the tolls were seriously oppressive the government dealt lightly with most of the rioters who had been captured and introduced measures which removed the grievances most seriously complained of rebecca and her daughters were heard of no more they had made out their case and done in their wild mumming way something of good work only a short time before the rioters would have been shot down and the grievances would have been allowed to stand rebecca and her short career mark an advancement in the political and social history of england sir james graham the home secretary brought himself and the government into some trouble by the manner in which he made use of the power invested in the administration for the opening of private letters mr duncombe the radical member for finsbury presented a petition from joseph mazzini and others complaining that letters addressed to them had been opened in the post-office many of mazzini's friends and perhaps mazzini himself believed that the contents of these letters had been communicated to the sardinian and austrian governments and that as a result men who were supposed to be implicated in projects of insurrection on the continent had actually been arrested and put to death sir james graham did not deny that he had issued a warrant authorizing the opening of some of mazzini's letters but he contended that the right to open letters had been specially reserved to the government on its responsibility that it had been always exercised but by him with special caution and moderation and that it would be impossible for any government absolutely to deprive itself of such a right the public excitement was at first very great but it soon subsided the reports of parliamentary committees appointed by the two houses showed that all governments had exercised the right but naturally with decreasing frequency and greater caution of late years and that there was no chance now of its being seriously abused no one not even thomas carlyle who had written to the times in generous indignation at the opening of mazzini's letters went so far as to say that such a right should never be exercised carlyle admitted that he would tolerate the practice when some new gunpowder plot may be in the wind some double-dyed high treason or imminent national wreck not avoidable otherwise in the particular case of mazzini it seemed an odious trick and every one was ashamed of it such a feeling was the surest guard against abuse for the future and the matter was allowed to drop the minister is to be pitied who is compelled even by legitimate necessity to have recourse to such an expedient he would be despised now by every decent man if he turned to it without such justification many years had to pass away before sir james graham was free from innuendos and attacks on the ground that he had tampered with the correspondence of an exile one remark on the other hand it is right to make an exile is sheltered in a country like england on the assumption that he does not involve her in responsibility and danger by using her protection as a shield behind which to contrive plots and organize insurrections against foreign governments it is certain that mazzini did make use of the shelter england gave him for such a purpose 
it would in the end be to the heavy injury of all fugitives from despotic rule if to shelter them brought such consequences on the countries that offered them a home the peel administration was made memorable by many remarkable events at home as well as abroad it had as we have seen inherited wars and brought them to a close it had wars of its own Sindh was annexed by lord ellenborough in consequence of the disputes which had arisen between us and the amirs whom we accused of having broken faith with us they were said to be in correspondence with our enemies which may possibly have been true and to have failed to pay up our tribute which was very likely anyhow we found occasion for an attack on Sindh, and the result was the total defeat of the princes and their army and the annexation of the territory sir charles napier won a splendid victory splendid that is in a military sense over an enemy outnumbering him by more than twelve to one at the battle of miani and Sindh was ours peel and his colleagues accepted the annexation none of them liked it but none saw how it could be undone there was nothing to be proud of in the matter except the courage of our soldiers and the genius of sir charles napier one of the most brilliant daring successful eccentric and self-conceited captains who had ever fought in the service of england since the days of peterborough later on the sikhs invaded our territory by crossing the sutledge in great force sir hugh gough afterwards lord gough fought several fierce battles with them before he could conquer them and even then they were only conquered for the time we were at one moment apparently on the very verge of what must be proved a far more serious war much nearer home in consequence of the dispute that arose between this country and france about tahiti and queen pomare queen pomare was sovereign of the island of tahiti in the south pacific the otaheite of captain cook she was a pupil of some of our missionaries and was very friendly to england and its people she had been induced or compelled to put herself and her dominion under the protection of france a step which was highly displeasing to her subjects some ill-feeling toward the french residents of the island was shown and the french admiral who had induced or compelled the queen to put herself under french protection now suddenly appeared off the coast and called on her to hoist the french flag above her own she refused and he instantly effected a landing on the island pulled down her flag raised that of france in its place and proclaimed that the island was french territory the french admiral appears to have been a hot-headed thoughtless sort of man the commodore wilkes of his day his act was at once disavowed by the french government and condemned in strong terms by m guizot but queen pomare had appealed to the queen of england for assistance do not cast me away my friend she said i run to you for refuge to be covered under your great shadow the same that afforded relief to my fathers by your fathers who are now dead and whose kingdoms have descended to us the weaker vessels a large party in france allowed themselves to become inflamed with the idea that british intrigue was at the bottom of the tahiti people's dislike to the protectorate of france and that england wanted to get queen pomary's dominions for herself they cried out therefore that to take down the flag of france from its place in tahiti would be to insult the dignity of the french nation and to insult it at the instance of england the cry was echoed in the shrillest tones by a great number of french newspapers 
where the flag of france has once been hoisted they screamed it must never be taken down which is about equivalent to saying that if a man's officious servant carries off the property of some one else and gives it to his master the master's dignity is lowered by his consenting to hand it back to its owner in the face of this clamour the french government although they disavowed any share in the filibustering of their admiral did not show themselves in great haste to undo what he had done possibly they found themselves in something of the same difficulty as the english government in regard to the annexation of Sindh. they could not perhaps with great safety to themselves have ventured to be honest all at once and in any case they did not want to give up the protectorate of tahiti while the more hot-headed on both sides of the english channel were thus snarling at each other the difficulty was immensely complicated by the seizure of a missionary named pritchard who had been our consul in the island up to the deposition of pomare a french sentinel had been attacked or was said to have been attacked in the night and in consequence the french commandant seized pritchard in reprisal declaring him to be the only mover and instigator of disturbances among the natives pritchard was flung into prison and only released to be expelled from the island he came home to england with his story and his arrival was the signal of an outburst of indignation all over the country sir robert peel and lord aberdeen alike stigmatized the treatment of pritchard as a gross and intolerable outrage and satisfaction was demanded of the french government the king and m guizot were both willing that full justice should be done and both anxious to avoid any occasion of ill-feeling with england the king had lately been receiving with effusive show of affection a visit from our queen in france and was about to return it but so hot was popular passion on both sides that it would have needed stronger and juster natures than those of the king and his minister to venture at once on doing the right thing it was on the last day of the session of eighteen forty four september fifth that sir robert peel was able to announce that the french government had agreed to compensate pritchard for his sufferings and losses queen pomare was nominally restored to power but the french protection proved as stringent as if it were a sovereign rule she might as well have pulled down her flag for all the sovereign right it secured to her she died thirty-four years after and her death recalled to the memory of the english public the long-forgotten fact that she had once so nearly been the cause of a war between england and france the ashburton treaty and the oregon treaty belong alike to the history of peel's administration the ashburton treaty bears date august ninth eighteen forty two and arranges finally the northwestern boundary between the british provinces of north america and the united states for many years the want of any clear and settled understanding as to the boundary line between canada and the state of maine had been a source of some disturbance and of much controversy arbitration between england and the united states had been tried and failed both parties declining the award sir robert peel sent out lord ashburton formerly mr baring as plenipotentiary to washington in eighteen forty two and by his intelligent exertions an arrangement was come to which appears to have given mutual satisfaction ever since despite of the sinister prophesyings of lord palmerston at the time the oregon question was more complicated and was the source of a longer controversy 
more than once the dispute about the boundary line in the oregon region had very nearly become an occasion for war between england and the united states in canning's time there was a crisis during which to quote the words of an english statesman war could have been brought about by the holding up of a finger the question in dispute was as to the boundary line between english and american territory west of the rocky mountains it had seemed a matter of little importance at one time when the country west of the rocky mountains was regarded by most persons as little better than a desert idol but when the vast capacities and the splendid future of the pacific slope began to be recognized and the importance to us of some station and harbor there came to be more and more evident the dispute naturally swelled into a question of vital interest to both nations in eighteen eighteen an attempt at arrangement was made but failed the two governments then agreed to leave the disputed regions to joint occupation for ten years after which the subject was to be opened again when the end of the first term came near canning did his best to bring about a settlement but failed the dispute involved the ownership of the mouth of the columbia river and of the noble island which bears the name of vancouver off the coast of british columbia the joint occupancy was renewed for an indefinite time but in eighteen forty three the president of the united states somewhat peremptorily called for a final settlement of the boundary the question was eagerly taken up by excitable politicians in the american house of representatives for more than two years the oregon question became a party cry in america with a large proportion of the american public including of course nearly all citizens of irish birth or extraction any president would have been popular beyond measure who had forced a war on england calmer and wiser counsels prevailed however on both sides lord aberdeen our foreign secretary was especially moderate and conciliatory he offered a compromise which was at last accepted on june fifteenth eighteen forty six the oregon treaty settled the question for that time at least the dividing line was to be the forty-ninth degree of latitude from the rocky mountains west to the middle of the channel separating vancouver island from the mainland thence southerly through the middle of the channel and the fuca straits to the pacific the channel and the straits were to be free as also the great northern branch of the columbia river in other words vancouver's island remained to great britain and the free navigation of the columbia river was secured we have said that the question was settled for that time because an important part of it came up again for settlement many years after the commissioners appointed to determine that portion of the boundary which was to run southerly through the middle of the channel were unable to come to any agreement on the subject and the divergence of the claims made on one side and the other constituted a new question which became a part of the famous treaty of washington in eighteen seventy one and was finally settled by the arbitration of the emperor of germany but it is much to the honour of the peel administration that a dispute which had for years been charged with possibilities of war and had become a stock subject of political agitation in america should have been so far settled as to be removed forever after out of the category of disputes which suggest an appeal to arms this was one of the last acts of peel's government and it was not the least of the great things he had done we have soon to tell how it came about that it was one of his latest triumphs and how an administration which had come into power with such splendid promise 
and had accomplished so much in such various fields of legislation was brought so suddenly to a fall the story is one of the most remarkable and important chapters in the history of english politics and parties during peel's time we catch a last glimpse of the famous arctic navigator sir john franklin he sailed on the expedition which was doomed to be his last on may twenty sixth eighteen forty five with his two vessels erebus and terror not much more is heard of him as among the living we may say of him as carlyle says of la perouse the brave navigator goes and returns not the seekers search far seas for him in vain only some mournful mysterious shadow of him hovers long in our heads and hearts End of section thirty one